0: Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the world of business, many companies spend millions of dollars on advertising and marketing. you want to sell your product, people need to know about it and know who you are as a business. Now, one effective marketing marketing tool is is a good slogan. For example, if, if I were to say the words, you can do it, we can help. You probably immediately think of the Home Depot. The slogan is a short statement. It's meant to send a a, a concentrated message. It tells people in a few words what this company is all about. It gets to the, the heart of what this company is, what they do, how they can help people. Why do I bring this up? Well, we have entered into a time of Advent. Advent is a time leading up to Christmas. We take the time to reflect on the coming of Christ into the world. There's so much to look at, so much to explore. The coming of Christ into the world is a turning point of history. We can ask, how can we summarize what Christmas is about? What's at the the heart of it? What's the meaning of Christmas? Can we come up with a short, memorable statement? It sends a message to everyone about why Christ came into the world. and What it means for those who who put their faith in him. Well, our text this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, it summarizes the meaning of Christmas so well. The coming of Christ into the world. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a statement that tells us what Christmas is all about. It's at the heart of the gospel, it's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. So as I proclaim to you God's word, I'll do, so under, do it under the following theme and points. Christ Jesus came into this world to give us poor people true riches. We'll look at two main things. First of all, Christ graciously gives us true riches. And second, we reflect his gracious giving to others. Well, the passage we read begins a new section in, the, in Paul's letter of uh, the Second Corinthians. At this point in his letter, Paul speaks about the collection of for the church in Jerusalem. Now, this, the church in Jerusalem was substantially larger than all the other churches in the New Testament church thus far. And yet, this church also fell into great need. Most likely because of a famine, as Acts 11 mentions. And our text, and many other texts, such as Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, speaks about this collection for the churches there. And Paul, in our text, too, he encourages the Corinthian believers to give generously, to take part in this collection. He does so in various ways. First, Paul speaks about the, the Macedonian churches, which was uh, another part of Greece that include churches such as the ones in Thessalonica. And these churches served as an example of how the grace of God changes people to give generously. And Paul wants the Corinthian churches to take note and to act accordingly. You know, the Corinthians had given their intentions to contribute to this collection to the church in Jerusalem. And now Paul wants them to carry through to the end. He's spurring them on to finish what they have begun. He says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Right? The Macedonian churches have proved their love by their generous giving. And so if the Corinthians mirror the earnestness of the Macedonian churches. They will show that their, their love that they have confessed for the saints is, is true. Their faith will produce works. Well, the Apostle Paul then gives another example of generous giving that can spur the, the Corinthians on. It's not another church or group of churches like the Macedonian churches. But he turns to our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me state again, this is what the coming of Christ into the world is all about. Let's unpack these words first part focuses on Christ himself. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Christ Jesus was rich. He had true riches. Jesus Christ is not only true man, but he's also true God. As the Nicene Creed puts it so well, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And this being the case, we can't even really comprehend the riches that Christ had. Christ prayed to the Father in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. We cannot understand the magnitude of that glory. But we can study what Scripture teaches about the glory of God. This will give us some sense of the the riches of Christ. Hebrews 12 gives us some of the sense. It describes something of the heavenly Jerusalem it says, Gathered there are innumerable angels in festal assembly. So imagine that for a moment in your mind. The heavenly Jerusalem, too many angels for anyone to count. And they're all in this beautiful choir giving magnificent praise and glory to our triune God. And Yet the Lord Jesus willingly put that aside for a time. There's also a passage like Isaiah 6. The prophet Isaiah recounts a vision of God's heavenly throne room. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And this is the glory that the Son of God shares in. In fact, the Gospel of John chapter 12 implies that in this vision that Isaiah had, that he saw, the prophet Isaiah saw none other than the Son of God. John 12 verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, referring to the Son of God. So when you read Isaiah 6, yes, you can also see the Son of God captured in that vision. We won't really know the riches Christ gave up until we reach glory, and even then we may not be able to comprehend it. These riches far surpass anything we see, even with our eyes on earth. Yet our text says, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. Now, in what way did the Lord Jesus become poor? Well, we know that the Son of God took upon himself a true human nature, Scripture says he became like his brothers in every respect, except without sin. However, we need to be be careful here. It's not to say there's something wrong with creation itself. Creation is good. God's creation of humans was very good. So to be a human by itself is, is not a poverty. And yet Christ took upon our human nature in a broken world. With all of its pain. With all of its weakness. And the glory of his divine nature was hidden within this covering of his frail humanity. And There were times when this glory shone through. John 2 tells us that at the wedding feast of Cana, Christ revealed his glory. He, he showed his divine power to create when he turned the water into wine. His disciples caught a glimpse of who he truly was. Think also of the mountain of transfiguration. Christ's clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun. His glory shone through for three of his disciples to see and to, to gaze upon. And on the whole, Christ looked ordinary. People did not recognize him as God's son were given the glory he deserved. As John 1 states, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. His poverty began right from day one. He was born in lowly Bethlehem. There was no room for his parents in the inn, so they were forced to lay him in a feeding trough. And all throughout his life, Christ's human nature was perfected through suffering. He was familiar with suffering. How often did our Lord not experience pain and sickness and sorrow? How often was he not hounded and and tempted by the devil? And at any time he showed by his miracles that at any time he had the power to give himself all of earth's comforts, but he refused. Instead, he confessed, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Our text tells us that Christ became poor for our sakes. He bore in his body and in his soul the wrath of God against our sins. And he suffered in this way throughout his life. But his poverty came to a climax on the cross. The soldiers crucified him, they nailed him to the cross. And then they took away his clothes, dividing them up between them. Those were his very last possessions, stripped away from him. He was left with nothing, and all of his disciples had abandoned him. And on the cross, all joy and all hope and all light, it, it fled away from our Lord Jesus as he suffered the wrath of God. He gave up every ounce of the riches of gladness and of hope and of joy. And he willingly endured the poverty of being freaking by the Father for our sakes. Christ Jesus became poor. He did it for us so that we might be saved. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate act of giving. It will never be repeated, it will never be matched by anyone on this earth, no matter how generous they are. It is the ultimate act of giving. And the poverty of the cross is completely opposite to the riches the Son of God was entitled to. You know, it's stunning, actually. Think about all the, the things you have, the riches you have, all your possessions, all your money. Would you be willing to give it all up in the same fashion? would you be willing to just give it all away and go live on the streets of Winnipeg for the rest of your earthly life? Now, let's imagine you did that. But even if you did, that would still not compare with the riches Christ gave up for our sakes. But Christ did it. And our text says he did this so that by his poverty, we might become rich. You see, by our sin, by our rebellion, we were the poor ones. We gave up the richest treasure of all God himself. We gained only poverty. We were destitute in our souls, devoid of of all the riches of true righteousness and holiness. We deserved the poverty of the cross, along with all of its shame and the wrath of God. And so, and now, so many people are walking around as, as poor souls, without any true riches. Without the riches that, that come from knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. It was something of this poverty was highlighted the other day when I was walking through the grocery store. The Christmas music was playing and I, I'm listening to the lyrics and I, I hear the singer sing, Have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. And As I'm listening to this, I couldn't help but look around at the people there and, and wonder to myself, you know, given the outlook and attitude of so many people right now, How many people here actually believe what this man is singing? Have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. Now does the treasure they have in life really allow them to have this? See, by and large, people have abandoned God and and our Lord Jesus Christ. And when people do that, it also means that when everything in life seems to go poof, as it seems to be the case right now, then your joy and your happiness is going to go poof right along with it. We have something different. We have true riches, lasting riches, riches that cannot be taken away. 1 Peter 1, verse 4 and 5 puts it like this. God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's, of course, not to minimize the pain and the loss some of us may be feeling right now in our lives. It's not to downplay the seriousness of a lost job or reduced income. Yet it highlights what a gift it is to have Christ. He's given us the riches of eternal life, the the riches of the love of God the Father forever. And it will never be taken away. It will be never taken away. And we can put our hope in it always. brings us to our next point. So again, this statement here in our text is the main reason why we celebrate Christ coming into the world. Of course, our text, it's part of a larger passage. As I mentioned already, the context for this statement about Christ giving up his riches is the collection for the Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he brings up the example of Christ's generosity because he wants to spur the Corinthians on to to give in this same manner, with the same spirit of generosity. And believers can can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, can reflect the the gracious giving of Christ to, to others in our life. Now, this collection for the poor people in the Jerusalem church, it's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. As you are to read through the New Testament, you can see it pop up here and there. We might wonder why it receives so much attention, and in fact, almost two full chapters in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Why, is it, why does the Holy Spirit seem fit to include so much of it in the, in the scriptures? You know, we have collections all the time, and it doesn't seem that extraordinary. Why this? Well, the, co- the significance of this collection should not be lost on us. The collection for the church in Jerusalem was the first of its kind in all of world history. It's not an overstatement. Think about it from an Old Testament perspective. On the pages of the Old Testament, pretty much all you see is animosity between Jews and Gentiles. But here we see the power of the gospel to dramatically change people's lives. Christ has made believers one in him. It doesn't matter which nationality the believers were from. didn't matter what social standing they had. Rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, it made no difference. These believers were one in Christ. And it's this truth that led to the practical outworking of their faith, their faith-produced works. The Christians in Jerusalem faced great needs, so their, their Gentile brothers and sisters willingly supplied them with this generous gift. And this is one reason why Paul is so eager to have this collection ready for the church in Jerusalem showed so well just how life-changing the gospel of Christ is. And this financial gift from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians would help to also solidify the unity of the church as they could see, yes, we are one in Christ. And this changing power of the gospel is seen so vividly in the Macedonian churches Spirit says through Paul, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The severe test of affliction is most likely some form of persecution. The book of Acts describes persecution in those areas. So here they are going through an extreme trial, possibly persecution. Their poverty, Paul says, literally is deep. But their joy overflowed, and out of these things came a wealth of generosity from them. It only comes from the working of the Holy Spirit. That's it's also why it's described as the grace of God upon them. So you see that in verse 1. What well, makes me think of a report I heard recently about some of the mission work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Uganda? If you want to see poverty, Uganda is certainly a place you can see it. And every year, the people there go through what's called the hunger season before the new crops are ready, ready to be harvested and the supplies from last year's harvest are running thin. The believers there, they rely on God to provide what they need for the day, and they believe that tomorrow God will do the same. They often have very little, but they are willing to share what they have. One young woman said, Before I came to Christ, I did not care about other people's problems. Now, when someone asks me for food, if we have more than we can eat that day, I give them what we have to spare. And that's beautiful. It's the change Christ brings. See, it wasn't Paul who was exacting this money from the churches, there were no threats. He wasn't trying to make the poor people even poorer so that he could give to the Jerusalem Christians. It's one reason why he says in verse 3 and 4, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Even begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Macedonian churches saw the riches they had in Christ, and so they wanted to give too. Paul encourages the Corinthians to the same. It says in verse 7, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We can apply these same words to us today also as, as Church of Jesus Christ. As you excel in so many things, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You know, at, at Christmas time, so easily our focus can be on getting. Getting more presents, getting more stuff. But I encourage you to, to flip that around. Focus more on, on giving. Focus on what Christ gave to us and coming to this world and then aim to give with the same love we can give to supply the needs of our brothers and sisters in this congregation there's so many people also who are needy in our in our community in our city we can give what we have to supply the needs of christians in other parts of the world also Again, as, as Paul says, I say to you, I'm, I'm not trying to exact money from you. You might imagine the Corinthian church, as they're reading this letter from Paul, they might reply, well, that sounds nice, Paul, but we have our own financial needs here, too. Are you trying to burden us so that others can live at ease? And Paul says, no, it's not what I'm trying to do. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Then he also says something else desires that there would be equality or or fairness, he, he says. You could translate it. He wants there to be fairness that no one in the church of God should go without their daily needs being met. To support his case, he turns to Exodus 16. He quotes from there, he says, "'Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack.'" And these words are from the story of the manna in the wilderness. God gave each of his people just what they needed. Nobody starved, and nobody had too much. Of course, in the New Testament age, God does not rain down bread from heaven to provide for our needs. He could do that. But he's still concerned about the well-being of his children. And instead of using manna to supply those who do not have enough, he often uses the generosity of his own people in the church, his own children. See, it's no big deal for God to rain down bread from heaven. He could easily do that. And we might think that would be great. But God delights in something better. God delights to see His children give generously to supply the needs of others. That's what He delights in. Think of parents with their children. How often do they not tell their, their children to, to share what they have with their siblings when they see one of their, a child of theirs being greedy? Well, God wants generosity from us as well. We should keep in mind that the tables might be turned one day. Verse 14 says, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. Right? The Jerusalem church is going through a time of need, but it may not stay that way, and your time of plenty might come to an end. Proverbs 23, verse 5 says, When you take one glance at riches, they are gone. They grow wings and fly away into the sky like an eagle. And that could happen to our riches as well. Put yourself in the shoes of needy Christians and consider, what would this feel like to have this poverty? And how would I respond when other Christians graciously supplied my needs? Sure, we would respond with thankfulness and praise to God. And that's one of the goals God has in mind with our giving. It benefits not only the one who receives, but also the one who gives. That's what 2 Corinthians 9 is all about. Paul, still talking about this gift to the churches, he says, this, the ministry of this service Giving is win-win. It benefits the person who receives, but also the person who gives. The thanksgivings that overflow from the receptions of gifts in Christ results in praise and prayer to God for those who have generously given. So let us see this. Let us seek the well-being of our neighbor Let's remind ourselves of what Christ has given to us. Let us also have generous hearts. Amen.